Well, welcome to Winning to Work, everybody. I'm Tony Moore. I'm your host. This is the podcast that food and beverage professionals turn to for entertainment, for education. It's basically a learning and development podcast. I think recently I was just notified that um, the Winning to Work podcast was is now like one of the, the top learning and development podcasts on the internet. I think they, they rated a bunch of these... Um, Podcast, and I think we came in number 34 out of a pretty big field of learning and development podcasts. So that's very exciting because my guests have been coming on, bringing a lot of great content. Of course, you know, I add, um, I add my two cents in with everything. Of course, uh, we always look at that talent angle as well. And today, I am really pleased to introduce to everybody Jennifer Lindsay. Jennifer, she's the Vice President of Global Marketing at Corbion. And we're going to have some interesting discussions around Corbion and uh, her background coming out of um, as a food scientist, moving into marketing, how you, you merge all the, this world of data into marketing because every company we're, we're inundated with data and how do we turn that into the the appropriate messaging to get that lift in sales or to get that lift in uh you know whatever your brand message or or purpose is how do you use that data that you're getting to accomplish all of those missions so jennifer thank you so much for for joining me today here on uh, winning at work well, thank you, Tony. Thank you for the invite and really cool to hear about the recognition of your podcast. That's amazing. So congratulations. Yeah. I Thank you very much. Yeah. That kind of came as a surprise to me. Uh, we were, you know, you and I were just kind of chatting a second ago offline, just how busy we've been in work and life and getting kids up and out into college and so on and so forth. And oh yeah, by the way, they just notified me that they've been doing this, um, I guess, search for like the, the top learning and development podcast. So, yeah. So, you know, hey, no pressure, Jennifer. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to turn everything over to Jennifer, and she's going to lead the discussion from here on out. No. Yeah, good thing I had coffee. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so for, for many people in the, the food and beverage world, particularly the, the, the food manufacturers and producers, they're aware of – Corbion, but there may be people out there that they've really, they don't quite understand the world of, you know, food ingredients. And I, this is why I really, I wanted you on to share a little bit more kind of behind the scenes to talk a little bit more about the industry that a lot of people, they, they're not even aware of. It's kind of their supporting food mm -hmm. and beverage and, you know, in the CPG world. And then we're going to, of course, dive into your, your actual expertise, which is kind of that blending of data and science into marketing. So I'm, I'm really interested to see, you know, how you use that to help further, you know, Corbion's uh, mission. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so Corbion is a global food ingredient uh, supplier and we are in the B2B space. Um, and so we sell products to CPGs that are highly functional ingredients. And what we mean by that is the ingredients that we, um, our strength and our particular talent uh, within are ingredients that are dosed at very low levels, typically under 1%, but have high functionality and end benefit in the finished food product. 
So, for example, we have functional tailored blends, which could be a proprietary blend for the needs of a particular customer in a particular application, and it would have proprietary ratios of hydrocolloids, emulsifiers, enzymes, starches, um, other high-functioning ingredients. We specialize in emulsifiers, another high-functioning ingredient, uh, which lends to texture um, in a variety of, of applications across food, whether it's bakery or dairy or beverages or confectionery, um, and has a variety of benefits. We have natural food preservation, which is something that's up and coming uh, with with natural and clean label. Oh yeah, natural is your yeah, natural and organic is huge. But I just want to go back to one thing you you said about high functioning. What, what does that mean exactly? It's a great question. High functioning means that. Let me just say, it, answer it as if if you didn't have it, um, it would be highly noticeable. So, for example, high functioning. Uh, ingredients that go into baked items, whether it's enzymes or emulsifiers, let's say. Um, pretty much everybody that is listening has made homemade bread at one point in time in their life. And that homemade bread needs to be consumed pretty much within 48 hours. And you have a noticeable difference in the bread texture, flavor, and quality within the same day from you know fresh baked two hours fresh versus sitting out for 12 hours versus 24 to 48. That eating quality that, if you will, in home shelf life is greatly reduced versus when you buy bread from a retailer, um, you have ingredients that are high function that can extend that freshness over time. So that eating experience that the consumer expects with the in-home shelf life that they need for busy lifestyles is there. And the texture, the flavor, um, anti-mold things don't mold as fast. That will that will be something that they can then use that bread for 7, 10, 14 days in the home. Um, and that's just an example, many examples of how high-functioning ingredients can work across the board. Um, and, and those are kind of what you said, kind of through the enzymes and emulsifiers? Enzymes, emulsifiers, other blends of other ingredients. Um, like in the dairy world or the beverage world, if you have beverages that contain any type of protein source, let's say uh, ready-to-drink coffee beverages. So you've seen products such as the Starbucks Frappuccino in the glass bottles that are shelf-stable. And they look very nice, and we call it homogeneous. It's very consistent in the bottle, and it looks creamy, and it looks appealing. Um, without a stabilizer system that can... Uh, stabilize that protein as well as the fat from the dairy that will separate out. And it would be very much like Italian dressing where you have two layers. Um, you can have what we call fat creaming at the top where you have a cream layer at the top. There's nothing wrong with the beverage, but it doesn't look appetizing or appealing. And the average consumer does not have a food science background. So they may interpret that as actually spoilage and that it's harmful to consume, even though it's not. So that's some of the ingredients that we use in order to make that eating experience to be what you expect it to be, as well as safe and healthy. You know, I was amazed just at the size and scope of Corbion. I mean, I'm just looking, you know, on your website, we look at the food, uh, you know, of the, of the four main categories or, or business units, food, biochemicals, biomedical, 
bioplastics. When I just look at food, when you've got bakery, beverages, confectionery, dairy, you've we've already mentioned emulsifiers, you know, fish, fruit, it goes on. I mean, you guys are really the kind of the foundation for the food and beverage world. Yes, yes. And we work with a lot of the large brand CPG manufacturers uh, for whatever they are driving to create for maybe new and different to capture the awareness and the attraction of the consumer, or it may be cost reduction. And right now, the entire world and the food world is not exempt. There is so much inflation of raw materials, transportation. I mean, everybody knows about this. Um, it's really a struggle right now. And manufacturers are trying to find ways to still have a quality product that the consumer desires that is affordable, yet at the same time manage the unbelievable increase in, cro- in costs that we're dealing with. That is a trend. I mean, clearly that is a trend. What other trends are you seeing? You also mentioned natural, uh, good for you. Is that, um, is, are, I guess I'm kind of, I kind of struggle with that because when I think of natural and organic, sometimes I think of less processed, less touched. So how does Corbian fit into that growing trend? Well, first of all, the mission of Corbion, when we had our new CEO, Olivier Rigaud, um, join us a few years ago, we, we took on, um, as you often do, looking at Corbion and, and our strategy and our mission and vision, and Corbion overall has sustainability as part of our DNA. We walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So our our new mission is to preserve what matters. And we understand that that means a lot of things. And that was intentional. It's not literally only preserve what matters being, yes, we happen to be in natural food preservation, um, but also preserve what matters is conducting yourself sustainably as a business overall for the uh, environmental health of, of the globe that we're all, you know, living within. Um, but also preserve what matters has to do with what matters to individuals. Um, and that can vary, but I mentioned the eating experience. I think if there's one thing the global pandemic has brought to the forefront of people's minds once again, and I think it's wonderful is that human interaction that having a meal together that time to engage, to talk, to play games. Um, we did that again. We, we had to slow down. And some things I don't think need to go back to the way it was before the pandemic. I think some positive things came out of that. And yeah, so, I love that. You know, families <laughs> came around the table. Exactly. So we've noticed overall there is a rediscovery in food and beverage of food and how food is the one common tie that binds across every country, every race, every religion, every culture. And food became a way to explore and experience during the pandemic and to rediscover. So we saw people were baking bread. I personally baked more loaves of banana bread, I think, the first three months than I ever have in my life. Um, <laughs> oh, my God, I love banana bread. <laughs> um, but but that, that's a good thing, and that's spilling over into consumer behavior. 
And interestingly enough, uh, the market insights and research team here in Corbion and myself, we were doing some, some uh, research and insight development. And there were some trends that we definitely see coming to the surface, coming out of COVID and as we're currently in COVID. Uh, for one, that bifurcation and what I mean, that, that, that two-track or two tiers, if you will, you still have, have individuals that they want premiumization and they want to indulge, and yet you still have the affordable foods. And consumers are exercising on both ends of the spectrum. But how they're exercising it is different, and it's often category dependent. So, for example, if somebody wants to have sandwich bread, they may go for the private label affordable. It's, it's good enough. And I'm going to get that sandwich bread. I'm going to save money here. But let's say they're having their family dinner on a Friday or Sunday night. Um, they're going to splurge and get that very premium, flavorful, thick, crunchy crust sourdough. And it better be worth the money. So they want to indulge because psychologically as humans, we have to indulge somehow in some way. And we've been denied that during COVID, but you can still experience that through your food and through that, that interaction with people that you care with or care for around food. Uh, so premiumization is I'm making a conscious choice to spend more money here as a reward to myself and I want it to be flavorful and I want it to be enjoyable. So they may, they, often they don't necessarily look at the calories and the fat because they want to enjoy it. In other aspects, again, they're trading down to private label to a, for more affordable type foods. In other aspects, health and wellness, again, it's a choiceful by category decision. Um, so that means that we have to be flexible on how we work with our customers. We have to be flexible in terms of it's not a one-size-fits-all consumer. So when we hear the trend of natural, clean label, organic, and non-GMO, yes, it's growing, but so is indulgence, and that is not necessarily natural and non-GMO and organic. Correct. And there's a yeah, mix. It's, it's, that, that doesn't, yeah, or, organic doesn't mean necessarily mean premiumization. You can find premiumization you know, across all categories. And you brought that up, and it's come up quite a bit on the podcast, this idea of you know every category is susceptible to premiumization. So when you look at all the different categories that you guys are working in in your B2B model, are there a few that you see that are have this kind of up-and-coming for this premiumization? Interestingly enough, um, beverage always seems to be something that, that, that seems to um, – come forward for premiumization. It's, it's pretty, as a category, it's one of the more progressive categories. Um, and I think we experience that as well because you have uh, the various coffee shops, you know, that that's entrenched in our society, not just through the national change, but the mom and pop, if you will, type of uh, coffee shops as well. So that's a perfect example of premiumization and they're always coming up with something new. Um, and, Right next to that is where you're seeing the resurgence of baking and people are falling in love with bread again. Prior to the pandemic, bread, oh my gosh, it had carbs and therefore I got to stay away from it. And bread was, if you will, almost being demonized. That has reversed. 
And I think it's wonderful. Again, it's the trade-off. I think consumers are now looking at balance and that comes into play because when we talk health and wellness, again, because of the pandemic, mental wellness has been thrust into the limelight and it is just as important as physical wellness. And Big people time. are talking about it more. You saw it as an example in the Olympics with, um, you know, Simone Biles, who I personally thought was very brave to, to come forward in that way. Um, that is something that food and mental well-being has been well connected for a long time. So going back to what I said, we need to indulge psychologically. We have to reward ourselves somehow, some way, but we have learned through the pandemic that there's a give and a take and there's a balance. So if individuals want their flavorful premium bread to enjoy with maybe a charcuterie board and a glass of wine, they're going to have it. If they're going to have some cake and, and indulge in that, they want it to be the best they ever can. But then they're going to co they're going to balance it out with maybe more fruits and vegetables, more exercise. Um, it's not as extreme as we saw before the pandemic, which I think is a welcome change. Well, that's great insight, particularly into beverage being more progressive. I've I've heard that before. I've I've heard from uh, well Matt Kovacs. He's the he's the president of uh, Blaze PR, and he he mentioned that a lot of the the media companies, the um, advertisers, they really. They really know how to get behind and push and promote beverage. So I don't know if it's – it might just be the whole ecosystem around beverage, including the advertisers, everyone that just tend to kind of push that envelope a little bit faster, a little more progressively than just food. I, I don't know exactly why that is, but I think you've just kind of supported that claim. Yes. Yes. No. And but also I find that while beverage is progressive, it's also the, um, if you will, kind of the muse of other food categories. So there are um, within bakery, dairy, other other food categories, you see that when beverage comes out with something like the crafted craze with beer and spirits. Okay. Craft and crafted is finding its way back into artisan breads and they're becoming more popular again um, and experiencing different type of grains and nuts and seeds and inclusions. Um, you see that also with small batch dairy. Um, so I think what starts there is an inspiration for the other industries to, to leverage and to adapt to their type of applications. Yeah, I'm seeing that. It's almost like a a gateway. It kind of shows it shows the other complementary foods and categories that can that can go with. Yes. So we so as we get into our theme of you know how do you translate the scientific data into really in an effective marketing campaign? Are we talking about um, how you're doing that internally at? Corbin to reach other food manufacturers, or are we talking about helping your clients create effective marketing campaigns, the companies that are using your emulsifiers and your um, enzymes? It's actually both, but I would say it's more heavily weighted internally, how we use that data and how do we, I have a phrase with uh, the marketing team internally, our job is to turn the science into the so what. 
So science turn science into the so what? Turn science into the so what? And the reason I say it that way is somebody that started my career in science. Um, I just think it's the coolest thing ever. I still love to go back into the lab and let's talk, you know, chemistry, the biology at the, you know, interface of what's going on in that food system. Um, some of the new research that's going on out there, whether it's in pharmacology, um, health and wellness, because again, kind of sister industries, food and pharma are very much kind of like a Venn diagram right now with health and wellness. Um, so, as a scientist, I'm fascinated by that, but people don't buy the science for the science. They buy the science for the benefit it can deliver in the food product. And that benefit, if it can be an advantage for the CPG manufacturer to have a friend of pack claim or to truly differentiate from their competitor, now we are able to connect the dots as to why it's relevant. And that's so what is what it delivers for the consumer eating experience. And you don't talk about a differentiation or a consumer eating experience in scientific terms. There is not a consumer out there that is picking up a loaf of bread or an ice cream because of the wonderful emulsification properties. What, they're not? I know it's shocking. So I, that's the first thing I look for. <laughs> but a plain white box just with the emulsifiers listed. Yeah. Uh you're you're really I think I think what's beautiful about that is that you're you know you come out of the day that you come out of the science world. So it must be almost like a left brain, right brain thing for you to have to yes. shut off you know, to shut off this uh, training and this passion and this love you have for, for data and numbers and, and the facts and then turn it around into something that's kind of soft and psychological almost. Well, I, I, I don't turn it off. I link them. In or my link. Brain. Okay. That's a better way to put yeah. it. Yes. Because um, every decision made by a human being and I will challenge anybody because I have had debates with, um, with individuals on this. If how people make decisions is also rooted in science in brain physiology. And so it is scientifically proven that the decision center in the brain is also the emotion center in the brain. And every decision has an emotional trigger or a switch that has to flip for you to decide to go one way or another way. So logic is in a different area of the brain, and it's in the area of the brain where the capacity for language is. Language and decision are not in the same areas of the brain. So what that means is, because I have talked to a lot of leaders who said, no, we're very logical, we have data-informed decisions. Yes, you do have data-informed decisions, and that's good, and that makes good business sense, and it's good business practice. But ultimately, when you decide to trust the data and make a decision, the data is leading you down that path, or maybe you don't trust the data and you ask for more data or more research, what's trust? Is that logic or is that an emotion? So every decision made by every human being has emotional trigger, and there's nothing more emotional than food, except maybe perfumery. 
so yeah, that, something very sensual. Um, yes. You know, oh, yeah, like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So that is why I believe strongly you have to connect the science and the data and the chemistry and the biology and all the wonderful things that science brings us. And then the so what is, and here's what it delivers in the final product. And this end benefit in the final product is connected to the consumer trends and desire for what they are seeking in the eating experience, whether it's health and wellness, whether it's indulgence, whether it's affordability, whether it's sustainability, we can link all that together. It takes some effort, but you have to be able to translate the science into the so what, I believe, in order to be effective and to be relevant. Science for the sake of science is really cool, but that doesn't mean the market wants it. Now, that doesn't mean it's not good science. It just may not be the right time. Maybe you put it on the shelf for a little bit, and in three, five, seven years, the time is right. Take it off the shelf, dust it off, try it again. Well, what advice would you have to kind of link this emotional trigger with the logic? So at Corbion, we're fortunate to have an, an insights team, our market research and insights team. And then we have our strategic marketing team, a traditional Marcom team, um, and our digital team. The market research team, I believe, is vital in order to make that connection because their entire skill set and, and the reason for being is to look outside in, connect the dots between the consumer, the trends, our customer, the product to the science. And then of course you have cross-functional teams that help with that because a market researcher is not a scientist, but they're a scientist in terms of data science for, for market intelligence. You marry that with an internal scientist, um, your business partners, And then you marry that with a Marcom person whose specialty is in communication and and framing that out in an effective way to connect with the market and your customers. That's when you have a winning combination. So this internal insights team that you, that you just discussed or just described, Mm -hmm. what if a company, what if a company doesn't have the insights team? Is there a, yeah. A publication? Can they go to IRI? Where, where do they go? How can they kind of manufacture this, this, you know, that you have internally? No, it's a great question. I was just about to say that not everybody has that capability internally. We're, we're extremely fortunate. Um, there are other companies that you can partner with. So there's uh, a company called Innova. There's another company called Mintel. Um, yes, you have uh, IRI data, Nielsen data. All of those companies are very effective in helping you connect the dots. Um, You can do some simple, what I call the desktop research, um, and that's just the Googling, (laughs) you know. Um, There is so much information out there um, to, to research what are the consumer trends in health and wellness, in premiumization, in affordability, um, you know, we were, we were doing some desktop research in addition to the syndicated or secondary source research, which is the Mintel, the Anovas, the IRI and Nielsen's. Um, and don't, don't disregard your own internal experience and knowledge. That's, that's part of the insight development and insights are basically business hypotheses. So I tend to think of them just like I did when I was a benchtop scientist running experimental designs 
and insights of business hypotheses. You have to test it. You have to see if you're, if you're, you can validate it or not. Um, and often you can come up with the ideas, put some concepts together, develop your value proposition and positioning. And usually you have a few customers in your portfolio of, of customers that are your early adopters that are the ones that like to have the first look at things. They're really the good pigs. to talk to. Exactly. They don't mind that. Other customers have maybe a different type of risk profile, and they don't want that. They want everything to be locked in and ready to go. Some like to be, I call it bouncing. Let's let's come up with some ideas and test it out. Those are the ones that are good to, to, to invite in, kind of peek behind the curtain and test some things out. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of fun in that as well, a lot of energy that comes out of that. Oh, I and, bet. And that's really where you, you find out very quickly, you know, if your idea is going to have legs and uh, then you can start putting some more marketing dollars or just R&D dollars behind it. But you mentioned something about a data scientist. I had, I, um, I've got another, well, I guess that the, by the time this podcast comes out, people will have already listened to Michael O'Donnell and he is a, um, a CPG, food and beverage. He's an absolute SME, particularly behind the scenes when it comes to data, data analysis. And he and I were just kind of chatting recently about the the, the big need in the marketplace right now for data scientists and data analytics. Mm-hmm. And you just touched on that. Can you can you expand on that a little bit? What what role that data scientist, that data analyst is providing, how you're using that information? Yes. And, and keep in mind that data scientists, like other scientists, sometimes they have their niche that they play in within the data that they, uh, that they untangle. Um, we are overloaded with data. Everybody is. And no, exactly. yeah. And, and it's daunting. Sometimes it's, it's, they say the, the metaphor, the big elephant, you know, the big white elephant, how do you eat one? You got to do it one, one bite at a time, one bite at a time. but man, you're looking at it going, I don't even know where to start. And so sometimes it's so overwhelming that you just don't start. And that's where the data scientist comes in. So, you know, you may have a data scientist in your R&D group, and they're looking at data purely from a scientific perspective, and they're looking for patterns in that data. Um, You may have another data scientist that can be in competitive intelligence um, or data scientists that are in the market research and insights team um, or teams that you contract out with a third party. But they're looking for patterns. They're looking for those anomalies because those can be the gateway to innovation. And I always say innovation always occurs at intersections, intersections of, you know, the trends, the science and the customer, or when you're doing a market analysis and typically, you know, they, they talk about steep analysis, the social, technological, economic, um, political and the E now comes in, in terms of everything being digital, the E world. Um, at that intersection that we all live as consumers every day, there are opportunities to leverage that even in the food world for either something of convenience or, again, what we talked about with the premiumization. Um, for example, when we were doing some analysis of, of what we think is coming out of the COVID world, you know, um, as consumers, I don't think, we don't think that people are going to ever go back to shopping like they did before. No, 
they're going to return to the retail store. There's no doubt about it, more than they did during COVID. But they have an experience now of ease, of click, ship, and they're done. And they don't ever have to leave their house and have things delivered. Some people won't go back to the retail way of shopping. That has huge implications for a CPG manufacturer and a retailer. Huge. Just think about it. We have uh, how how would that impact uh, a CPG manufacturer? So think about that you are used to consumers going up and down the aisles, physically engaging with your product. They can, we're going to stay with bread. They can pick up two loaves of bread side by side, hold it in their hands. They can look at the label. They can turn it over. They can feel the texture through the packaging. Um, there are sensory cues that they receive when they're physically right there next to the product. And even the other products surrounding in other aisles give them inspiration in the moment subconsciously of, oh, I'm going to do this for dinner or whatever, you know, my weekend plans are. When you are online, those sensory cues are no longer there. You're only staring at a screen in two dimensions. You can't do a comparison shop you could do between two, but, oh, my gosh, how many loaves of bread do you see at the retail shelf when you're in the grocery store? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And all the different that, choices. Right. You don't have that ability to browse as easily. You don't have that impulse buy. We have been conditioned by Google and Amazon to shop by keyword. You don't shop by keyword when you're physically going up and down a grocery store aisle. How does a CPG brand create an emotional trigger online? I guess that's the million dollar question now. It is. And this is what we've been discussing with our customers is do not underestimate the emotional decision-making of a consumer and how are you going to replace the impulse buy and how are you going to replace that comparison shopping moment like you do physically online? So you have to think in keywords and attributes. So that means that's your front of pack. Your front of pack now has to have differentiation. You have to be able to make a claim somehow, some way, some within the existing claims of today, which may be no artificial preservatives, could be um, you know new and improved, whatever. But what are the other claims that you can create that you can own and that differentiates you on the screen in addition to at the shelf from your competition? And that's where the science connects to the so what because the type of ingredients that Corbion sells enables those end benefits and point of differentiation that potentially could be a front of pack claim that is a differentiator. And if I'm searching by keyword and key attribute as a CPG manufacturer, I have to enable that retailer, which by the way, retailers have their own captive websites for point click and buy um, they're not uniform. You can't control how they display your product. So you need to give them a reason to highlight your product. You need to make your product keyword searchable. So how do you link your product to health and wellness? How do you link your product to premiumization? How do you link your product to affordability? And right. CDGs How do you link your product to that category manager yes. so they see? Yes. That goes back to your that goes back to your data scientist 
who's understanding the patterns and the trends and the categories yes. that you can say, guys, there is a hidden trend here. We're at the front of pack. We need to get more shelf space and you need to be highlighting this because this is now an upcoming right. trend. This will bring people in. Is that what that, yes. that's what you're saying? Yes. And so this, we believe, is a new frontier for marketers at CPG companies because the Amazons of the world know how to do this very well. But does your local grocery retail chain know how to do this really well versus another local grocery retail chain that's a competitor that you're dependent upon to highlight your products as a CPG manufacturer? How are you enabling that retailer to make their life easier with your product being differentiated and keyword taggable to show up on the screen as a consumer is doing their grocery shopping. And how do you get around? Some consumers have their standard list and they, the retailer sites can save what they bought before and they can just say, yeah, I want the same thing. Okay. Goodbye. Impulse buy. Goodbye. Knowing that you have a new product. How do you enable the kind of like what Amazon does? Oh, you bought this. We suggest this. How do you make sure? You know what the big problem too, I tell you, Jennifer, the the big problem that the CPGs are having now is how do they expand? You know, how does a a regional (laughs) firm expand national when they can't get out? They can't meet people. They can't get the food, you know, in front of the the customer, right? I mean, right. it's one thing to open it's one thing to open the door, but it's another thing to get the volume and to get it to pull through. And that's the problem when everyone's just buying online. If you've never tried the product before, what's going to make you buy it? Correct. And so that's the big, big issue. These, these, they all yes. tell me this. This, this yes. is the big, big problem right now. Yes, yes. And and we've never had to deal with this before. So it is as everything is today that we're experiencing. It's unprecedented. And the train's already left the station and is barreling down the tracks. And we're just all kind of holding on for a dear life and saying, okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Great <anyway."> analogy. You know? <laughs> I feel like a hobo just trying to hold on. Yeah, yeah, we're just running, trying to get onto the cart. Just just catch the caboose. You know, you got a few more cars before passes you by. Um, I think you really have brought a a, a bright light. I think you just, for me, and I think hope for the listeners. I think they've just now made that connection between the data, the science. Um, connecting it into the USP, the unique unique selling proposition, which puts your brand, your product, you know, uh, what'd you call it? The front of the pile? Front, you of, call pack. That? front, front of, of pack. Front of pack is a term yeah. that we use in the packaging that you, when you go up and down the aisle, you have all this information on the front, the claims. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I think you've just tied it all together. And I think you've, you've kind of tied a bow around the place Corbion plays in that marketplace, helping those B2B companies compete to do this. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're, I think it's kind of interesting. Your, um, your mission, your tagline, preserving what matters, you know, preserving what matters means so many things to different people. It could also mean helping a brand just maintain its status. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the science has to be relevant. Like, like, like I said, with our natural preservation line of food ferments, I mean, you fermentation has been around since the dawn of time. <laughs> um, but yet, you know, science is catching up with nature. All we're doing is leveraging what nature has already developed and designed. Um, 
we're just we're we're just using it as a way to control other things in nature, such as anti-mold, anti-spoilage um, organisms in food. So it's a wonderful, exciting, exciting time. So for those people who maybe or those companies that don't have this data scientist or these data analysts, are you aware of companies or you know third party uh, alternatives to this? Yes, yes. Um, that, that's like the uh, when I was mentioning the Mintel um, has a subscription. Yeah, but then and those are subscriptions they can um, you know opt into to do on their own. But there's also companies that are market research companies, and and that's something you know if you have some inquiries, I'm happy to give out some information with that as well because there's a lot of them and. And um, they specialize in different areas. Well, for people who are interested in that, you'll, if you're listening to this on Spotify or iTunes, if you just look in the show notes, you'll, you'll see uh, Jennifer Lindsay's, uh, you know, how to reach her on LinkedIn. So you can always just kind of connect with her on that. Um, you know, we, 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 we covered a lot of information. We went pretty deep into this kind of converting scientific data into marketing. I think, I, I feel fairly satisfied that we've really kind of laid out the case to do this. I know we were going to discuss talent. I don't know uh, if we have much more time to do that. So maybe uh, I think you might have you know, given some thought to that. So why don't we just finish with one of your best ideas around, you know, how can you help a hiring leader? And we'll just kind of close out with that. Right. In my space, um, because of the, the connecting the science to the so what, one of the things that I look for in talent is, you kind of mentioned it, the left-right brain. Um, in particular, in the space that I occupy, but even with application scientists, um, I look for that left-right brain connection. And a lot of that also goes into what I call the, I mean, I don't necessarily like the term, but it's called, I call it soft skills. Um, it's how are you able as an individual to lead, guide, facilitate a project or an idea when you have no direct authority over somebody? Um, that collaboration, that uh, courage to speak up and voice your idea uh, and to champion it, because oftentimes there's a lot of reasons why people think an idea may not work, um, but there, it, it could be the genesis of a great innovation. So um, I think that cross-collaboration, that ability to communicate, that ability to be the champion of something, um, to connect the dots, if you will, from the market to the customer to the end product and the science, that's key. And looking for individuals that can work left and right brain, I find, is, is something that's critical in that space. What I find is challenging is we can have an idea like that, but then you have to still translate it over into an interview question or a series of questions. And then you have to understand what you're looking for in terms of an answer. Mm -hmm. There are better answers. So uh, I'm kind of putting you on the spot. Do you have a, a question or a series of questions that you'd like to ask? We can kind of finish with that. And I think that'll sure. help people begin to suss out the, does that person have that left, right brain connection? Uh, one question I often ask is, share with me a time that you were able to convince somebody to change their mind in a project. 
because again, oftentimes there may be an idea, but you may be talking to finance or operations or a scientist or a marketer or a salesperson who's going to tell you, no, we can't do that. Well, like I said, it could be the genesis of a great idea. How were you able to convince people to try this because you believed in it so much? Um, share with me a time that you had conflict uh, with a colleague during a project. How did you resolve it and still positively um, work through the project to fruition? That's a left right brain type of skill set to be able to manage that conflict. And something that I think is important, um, especially since we've been working from home and, and you know isolated from one another for so long, Conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. So I want to listen to how people frame conflict. Conflict can be an opportunity and it can be handled positively. And often the outcome is that breakthrough of innovation. It's part of the process of working through it. Uh, Jennifer, this has been just fantastic. I just want to thank you on behalf of, of all the listeners for uh, sharing of your, your time and your talents today with us. And I certainly hope we can follow up again. I think there's several other topics that were touched on that we could easily come back in and and spend a little more time with. Well, thank you for the time today. I really enjoyed the discussion. 